0: All right, let's go. 1 Corinthians chapter 16. 1 Corinthians chapter 16. If you uh, don't have a Bible, we will have the uh, text up on the screens behind me in just a little bit. Uh, we also have some physical Bibles scattered around the room, little racks beneath the seats. Uh, if you don't own a Bible of your very own, we would actually invite you to take that one home. And the reason for that is super simple. We believe that God uses His Word, full stop. The, he uses His Word for a thousand different things, but the chief end that He uses His Word for is to reveal Himself to His people. I, I hope it's not like news to you, but we want you to know God. Like, we want you to actually know him, revolve your life around him, define the world you live in by your knowledge of him and relationship with him, and if the scriptures are what he uses to do that in you, like, like start reading them. Like, that seems like a smart thing to do, right? And so if you don't have one, take that one. I'll call it a present, and I'll call it the best part of my day. So, 1 Corinthians chapter 16. Uh, welcome to the very last week of our Corinthians series, guys. Some... I'm not sure how to read that. <laughs> some of you are excited, some of you are like, finally. All right, so here's the deal uh, we have been walking through off and on uh, the letter that we call 1 Corinthians for exactly one year now we started this thing the first week of october uh last year and so because of the other things we built in uh, it's week 29 for us in this series but it's taken us a full year to get to this point and so we're going to knock out the rest of the letter this morning um if you haven't been here uh first corinthians is a letter written by the apostle paul to a young church in the greek city of corinth it was written somewhere between 53 and 55 ish ad uh and so a specific part of history. Um, this church is young, they're super bright, they're super talented, and what's worse is that they know it, all right? And so they're also super arrogant. Um, and so Paul loves them, he wants incredible good for them, uh, and so he presses in and engages them through their absolute nonsense. And um, sometimes, sometimes that engagement is a little, little you know, a, a lot more subtle uh, but then sometimes it's not so subtle uh, sometimes the he just kind of drops the kids glo- kid gloves together and he just tells them you know in no uncertain terms you're not as awesome as you think you are but then there's also this kind of steady drumbeat all the way through the letter that is a little more subtle that is a little more nuanced and the overarching trajectory of that steady drumbeat that 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 thing that Paul consistently wants to bring them back to is the reality that God's kingdom is built out to be intentionally upside down from all of the competing kingdoms on the table. They don't look alike at all. They value different things. They exalt and lift up and celebrate different things. God's kingdom is wholly different. Hearts have to be, must be changed in order to love God and love what God loves in order to find entrance into this kingdom. And until that heart changes, it's just always going to feel awkward and unwanted. It's going to seem upside down even. And... Maybe even contemptible at times. God's kingdom is intentionally upside down. But here's the thing: even after hearts have been changed, like can, can we be honest? Like there's still lingering doubts buried deep down inside of us, right? It takes takes a while to distance ourselves from the faulty logic of the kingdoms that we were born into. At least that's true for my heart. Maybe I'm alone in that. Maybe not. And so the questions that we've been training ourselves to ask whenever we you know, find ourselves in these moments of dissonance, these moments where we're not really sure we want to buy into the logic of God's kingdom, where we're not really sure we want to trust that his promises are better and more fulfilling than the promises that we were pro- given uh, from these other kingdoms, these other competing places. Uh, and so the, the, pro- the questions that we've been training ourselves, disciplining ourselves to ask, they all kind of revolve around whether or not we actually trust that God is smarter than us and stronger than us and better than us. All right? In other words, is his kingdom beautiful? Is it true? Is it good? Does it have eternal value in a world that's quickly fading away? And if we can answer yes to those questions, then maybe the walls that we see in front of us that make us go, I don't know, sure, I buy that. Maybe those walls are actually just hurdles, and we can jump over them and keep running. We can trust that God is who he says he is, and he's got it. And we can press on. And so we said early and often throughout this letter that we're not Corinth. Um, I don't know if you know this, but they got some problems. As we've read through this letter, some a lot of those things have come up, and uh, we haven't even gotten to, to the second letter of Corinthians, and Paul brings some other new issues up there. And so we don't struggle with the same junk that Corinth did, and we certainly don't have the same chaotic nonsense going on in our church. But but again, we've said early and often that the pathway to getting to Corinthian train wreck is not that far of a walk. It's not that far of a walk at all. In fact, we can find ourselves in that place way faster than we fear we could. So we've been kind of using this letter as a sort of compass. Remember week one, I brought a, an orienteering compass on the, on the, up on the stage. Uh, I, I was planning to bring it up here today, but I, I lost it. <laughs> <laughs> so picture in your head a year ago, there was an orienteering compass. It was awesome. <laughs> so we said that we, we, we would try to use this letter as a, as a compass to kind of check our bearing. Because here's the deal, getting off by one degree doesn't matter much on a week to week basis, but you do that over generations, you're going to you're gonna miss your mark by a pretty good distance. And so we wanted to continually come back and, and reorient, continually come back and, and, and make sure that we're on the pathway that God would actually call us to walk on. And so we've been using this letter as a sort of a compass, and so we want to discover the problems and fix the problems before we get too far down the road, Right? And by God's grace, man, I think he's protected us, seriously protected us in a lot of ways from, from having too many uh-oh moments. He's been really good to us. Again, maybe, maybe I'm the only one who sees that, but I, I know me, right? I think God has absolutely guarded us from some of the nonsense. But we got one more chapter to dig into. And so Paul's got some final things he wants to say. So y'all ready to put this thing to bed? 1 Corinthians chapter 16, starting in verse 1. Paul says this Now concerning the collection for the saints. As I directed the churches of Galatia, so you also are to do. Let's call time out there. All right, so Paul uses something here that changes the subject. He uses the same kind of phrasing that he's used several other times now throughout this letter. And each of those times, it was to kind of change the subject to addressing a question, answering a question that they had previously asked of him. All right, and so we think that that's probably what's going on here too. Uh, Paul had previously, before this letter, had called them to... uh, Participate in an offering for the churches in uh, Jerusalem. There was a famine going on, and he had promised the other apostles earlier on in Acts that he would point uh, that he would make a point of supporting the church in Jerusalem when they got themselves into a problem. And Paul was absolutely faithful to that promise. He did it over and over again. And so it seems here that the Corinthian church had a few questions about this offering, and now Paul is answering those questions verbatim. And I think we we don't know exactly what the questions are, but I think. I think we can get a clue as to what the questions are based on how Paul answers those questions. And so, um, Paul makes the point here of saying that all of the churches in the province of Galatia were called to participate in the same offering. So, why, why would he like make a special effort to point that out? Well, I think this is the only theory, but I think it's because the Corinthians had a really, really long track record of believing that they were the only church getting things done. Right? Haven't we discovered that over and over and over again throughout this letter? They had this kind of mindset that, that everybody needed to watch how they did things and learn some, th- some stuff, right? Over and over again throughout this letter, Paul has had to repeatedly remind them that, that God is the one doing the work, and God's got a plan much bigger than just the Corinthian church, right? Much bigger than what they see right in front of them. They aren't the only church that God is using in a powerful way. They are part of a much larger God-focused, not Corinthian-focused story. So Paul kind of calls them out here. But maybe he needs to call us out too. See, here's the deal. I I think that this is a way that churches in our own day can sometimes get themselves in trouble. You sit in the leader seat for a while, uh, you, you start to to try to play the game. See, even even while chasing after really good things, a subtle shift can occur in our hearts that causes us to posture ourselves for being the winner of the game rather than a faithful participant of the game. And those are very different postures. Based on everything we've learned about Corinth so far, like, like, can you see them there? Does anybody doubt that they heard the call to participate in a special offering for other churches and immediately they turned it into an opportunity to try to make much of themselves? I can be guilty of that. I'm certain the Corinthians could be guilty of that. We don't have to lean only on past experience in the Corinthian letter for insight. I think this is the reality that drives what Paul says next in verse 2. He says, On the first day of every week, each of you is to put something aside and store it up as he may prosper so that there will be no collecting when I come. And when I arrive, I will send those whom you accredit by letter to carry your gift to Jerusalem. If it seems advisable that I should go also, they will accompany me. All right. So we discussed this uh, this text several months ago in our "But Why" series when we talked about why we take up an offering uh, when we gather together as a church on Sunday mornings, and we said then. We said then that we give lots of options, both uh, in service and online and all those kinds of things that we do. Uh, we give lots of different op- options because people need lots of different options based on where their heart is at when they're giving, all right? And so we want to kind of meet people where they are, and we want to create uh, uh, different categories that they can slot into based on where their specific heart needs to be giving. And so uh, giving... Uh, uh, giving during the service is a really good option. It's a celebrative thing, right? And so it's this moment where people get to respond in worship by giving. But then there's also some people, and it's certainly not all the people who use the, uh, the online stuff as, as an option, there's also some people who need to like, get the eyes off of them, right? There's also some people who need to, to distance themselves from the moment of being seen putting something in the box. So we want to serve people that way. And we pointed to this text as an allowance, as an illustration of that position. There's a lot of grandstanding going on in the Corinthian church and a big public offering. It's kind of an easy target for grandstanding, right? Anybody looking for an opportunity to draw attention to themselves, we're going to find it in that moment. So Paul Tells them to get out in front of it, prevent the possibility by having someone, having everyone can just kind of square off that offering privately the first day of each week. We would call that day Sunday. And by doing that, it will all be handled when Paul shows up, and they won't have to worry about making a big show of anything. But not only do we see instruction as to how to handle the offering, but we also get some insight here to how they were to handle the money once the offering was taken. Paul says, "I'll I'll let you choose who the couriers are. People, people, you uh, accredit right. I'll let you choose who the couriers are. And if you want me to carry it, I'll bring your couriers with me." That's what he says. Hey, did you know that Paul has enemies? Never come up. He's got some people who are just waiting around for him to make a misstep so they can accuse him of something and discredit him. Do you think that possibly, just maybe, it definitely doesn't play out this way in our own world, but do you think that possibly a misappropriation of an offering might be something that Paul's enemies are watching closely? And just like taking up the offering, Paul gets out in front of the folks who want to find reasons to turn it into a problem. And so Paul models a posture here that, that, honestly, we try to model ourselves in our own church. I, I, I don't mess with money here. In fact, I get nervous if you try to hand me something that's just supposed to go to the office. I, I don't want to touch it. It doesn't matter if people trust me. It doesn't matter if people think I'm competent to do the right thing. It opens a door for people who are looking for an open door. So I just, I I get nervous. It's like, eh, give it to somebody else. (laughs) So we put buffers in place. Sometimes those buffers may seem unnecessary. They may seem over the top. And yeah, in some ways they probably are, but sometimes they're also just common sense, right? But either way, nobody gets to say anything. We guard people and we guard our church by putting some distance between specific leaders and dollar bills. Paul does the same thing all the way back in the first century. It's wise. we we'll look at verse 5. Paul says, I will visit you after passing through Macedonia, for I intend to pass through Macedonia, and perhaps I will stay with you or even spend the winter so that you may help me on my journey wherever I go. Verse 7, for I do not want to see you now just in passing. I hope to spend some time with you if the Lord permits. But I will stay in Ephesus until Pentecost, for a wide door for effective work has opened to me, and there are many adversaries. All right, so this paragraph probably doesn't make any sense at all if you are not up to speed on your first century political geography, right? Who's got that rolling around in the back of their head? What else could you possibly fill your head with? Like, isn't that something you just kind of stay up late at night digging into on online? Your first century political geography? No? All right. Well, you know what that means then. We get to look at a map. Yeah. I got a map. All right. So, this is stuff. All right. So, so you've got modern day Greece on the, on the western side, the left. You've got modern day Turkey on the right. And that pretty blue water in the middle is the Aegean Sea. All right. So, that's really awesome. It sounds really cool. Ephesus is right there. All right, so Ephesus is on the western coast of Turkey, uh, kind of in the middle there. And Corinth, I know it's really hard to see for those in the crowd. Those of you who are watching online will love this. All right, those of you, uh, Corinth and Athens are almost exactly due west of the uh, of, of Ephesus there so Paul we think is in Ephesus when he's writing this letter we don't think we know he's in Ephesus when he's writing this letter and the the people he's writing to are just a few miles across a body of water directly west of him all right so that's really great and that's really awesome but while this map is nice and clean this is not what political realities actually look like the Roman Empire is full of provinces Subcategories. One of those uh, provinces is something you're very, very familiar with Judea, right? That's where the Gospels play out. That, that's all down south of the, the Ephesus stuff in the, in the modern day Turkey, right? And so those provinces uh, are, are one, some that you've heard of before, some that you probably haven't, but like, like, what do they look like? Well, I got another map. It's fancy. Let's see that one. Yeah. <laughs> so refined. We do things so fancy here at National Baptist. All right, so I quickly drew in uh, the provinces. If you have a map in your Bible, it probably looks something like that, but maybe a little different because I was in a hurry. All right, so in on the far western side of Turkey, all right, you have the region called Asia. All right, so uh, back early, early on in the Greek world, uh, they decided that um, everything to the the east of them across the Aegean Sea uh, would be just that eastward country over there, and the root of the word Asia. Asia, the Greek root, it means towards the sun, towards the east, all right? And so it just got called Asia. And they didn't care what was over there. It was just all that stuff at the east, all right? And so the name kind of stuck. All right, so you got Asia, which is where a lot of churches that you've heard about come from, especially Ephesus. That's in Asia. And so at one point when Paul says all the churches of Asia have heard the gospel, that's the Asia he's talking about. He's not talking about Russia and China and all that. All right, so to the east of Galatia uh, of Asia, there's another region called Galatia, all right? And so you've heard of the, the letter to the the Galatians; those are letters to churches scattered across that region. It's not one church; it's a bunch of churches across the region of Galatia. All right, and so you got Asia, you got Galatia, going up and around. You've got Bithynia and Thrace, and then going down the Greek Peninsula, you've got Macedonia, and then Epirus, and then even further down, you've got Achaia, all the way at the southern tip of Greece. Some people pronounce it Achaia, some people pronounce it Achaia, some people prefer to to dabble with the far more refined sounding Achaia, good luck, all right, which uh, all those options work, all right, Greeks, ancient Greeks is kind of a weird thing, just go with what comes out of your mouth, I'm going to go with Achaia, all right, so Paul says, Paul says that he is going to hang out in Ephesus, in Asia, until the... Jewish holiday of Pentecost, all right? And so we learn about that in, in the Bible, right? The Jewish holiday of Pentecost. And then he's going to make his way towards uh, them in Corinth in Achaia, all right? And so, uh, but he's like, like he, he's just not going to go straight there. He's going to go like the, the longer route, north and across and down. So why would he do that? Well, there's a couple of reasons. Because um, like Like, shortest distance from point A to point B is a straight line. Like, why wouldn't he just, like, get in a boat and sail across if he's due west? Well, it's because, one, that water in between them, it's kind of dangerous. It's not exactly an easy place to sail. And if you're nervous about boats, and Paul's got reasons to be nervous about boats, you might choose to not go that route. And so people would often go up towards the top part of Asia to Troas and sail directly across to Macedonia and then go down. It was an incredibly common uh, route to get to southern Greece because you didn't want to mess with the waters of the southern Aegean. You wanted the nicer, more calm waters of the northern Aegean. But there's a second reason why Paul would choose to go the longer route, and it's because Paul's got people and churches that he loves and all those other places. He wants to see some folks. He's going to turn this into a road trip. He's going to visit a bunch of people on the way. So now that you see it, I'm going to read this paragraph again. It's going to make like a thousand times more sense, right? right, Keep the map up on the screen. I'll read it again. All right, verse 5. I will visit you after passing through where? Macedonia. For I intend to pass through Macedonia and perhaps I will stay with you or even spend the winter so that you may help me on my journey wherever I go. For I do not want to see you now just in passing. I hope to spend some time with you if the Lord permits. But I will stay in Ephesus until Pentecost for a wide door for effective work has opened to me and there are many adversaries. Got it? Good. Oh, come on. I'm a better teacher than that. (laughs) Paul can't get away from Ephesus just yet. There's, there's a bunch on his plate. People are, are hearing the gospel. They're responding to, powerfully to the gospel. He's also got some people he calls adversaries here. Back in chapter 15, he calls them beasts. So apparently he's got some problems with some folk. But once Paul gets all of that squared away, he'll be on his way. He's going to take the longer route. He wants to see some people. But when he finally gets there, his plan is to stay for a while. As long as possible, even. Let me get through the winter here. I got some work to do. And I'm gonna I'm gonna stop and see some people on my way down to see you, and when I when I finally get there, we're gonna we're gonna spend a lot of time together. That's his plan. Look at verse ten. When Timothy comes, see that you put him at ease among you, for he is doing the work of the Lord as I am. So let no one despise him help him on his way in peace that he may return to me, for I am expecting him with the brothers. Alright, so back in chapter 4, Paul has already told them that he has sent Timothy their direction. Timothy is already on the way, heading to, heading to Corinth. And so he should be there soon. The, the letter is probably going to beat him there, because I guess mail in the first mid-first century traveled faster than people. I don't know. But whatever. Paul has already sent Timothy, and the letter is supposed to get there before him. But in Acts 19, we learn that Timothy is accompanied by a guy named Erastus. And so there's these two guys traveling by boat. I don't know if they're taking the, the, the dangerous route or the longer route or an even longer route that we haven't heard about. Whatever it is, they'll eventually get there. But when they get there, Paul says that they are to be warmly greeted and provided for. But not just warmly greeted and provided for. They are to be listened to, respected, and protected even. Earlier in the letter... Paul had to defend himself from people who were taking sides in a debate debate that should have never been a debate. He was throwing Timothy now into this mix. He says, hey, treat this kid better than you treat me. I mean, that's kind of the tone here. It's tragic that he has to tell them that, but also here we are, right? Treat this kid better than you treat me. He's doing the work of the Lord as I am. Show him some respect. And we see... The next layer of the same issue in verse 12. Paul says, Now concerning our brother Apollos, I strongly urged him to visit you with the other brothers, but it was not at all his will to come now. He will come when he has opportunity. Hey, remember back in, earlier on in this letter when everybody was uh, like shouting things like, I follow Paul, I follow Apollos. Yeah, well, I follow Cephas. Oh, you're all in this, I follow Christ. That, that, that was what was going on, right? And we're told in Acts at the end of Acts chapter 18 that when Apollos first arrived in Corinth, that he greatly quoted, helped the churches of uh, church of Corinth because he was incredibly articulate and put the Jews in their place. The Jews were stirring up trouble, and he openly refuted them. And everybody in Corinth was going, "Man, look at Apollos!" <laughs> That, that, that's what was going on, and they loved Apollos for it. Early on in this, in this series, we spent a lot of time discussing that one of the reasons that the factions were arguing over all this stuff and arguing over whose leadership they preferred was because Apollos was pretty much exactly the demographic of leader that the Corinthians respected and valued. That's what impressed them. There were several who didn't like Paul for no other reason but because he had committed not to speak with eloquence and lofty wisdom in their presence. Lest the cross be emptied of its power, he says. According to verse 12 here, according to verse 12, it seems like some folks in Corinth had asked Apollos to come back. Apollos, we really miss you. Can you come back and hang out for a while? We'll take care of you here. We're also told that Paul encouraged him to go. But for whatever reason, Apollos wasn't willing to go, able to go, possibly, it seems, unwilling to go. That he said no. This is yet another example in this letter that shows us that the factions were just pure, utter nonsense absolute nonsense. The immature in Corinth were constantly trying to pit Paul and Apollos and other leaders against each other. They tried to make them enemies, but apparently that's not how they thought of each other. seems like they hung out together outside of Corinth. They were friends on the same gospel team. They weren't enemies. They were partners. Just goes to show that pettiness produces conflict, not the other way around. Conflict doesn't produce pettiness. Pettiness produces conflict, which which I think is the catalyst for what Paul says next. It's another one of those kid gloves come off kind of moments in verse 13. Be watchful, stand firm in the faith, Act like men. Be strong. Let all that you do be done in love. Hey, there is not another phrase in the English language that could sober a guy up and call him to pay attention to what he's doing, like the phrase "act like a man." anybody ever been on the receiving end of one of those? I have. It wasn't a fun moment for me. It was a moment I needed. It was definitely a moment I needed. You ever ever had an older guy pull you aside and say, hey, boy, let's chat? If you haven't been on the receiving end of one of those conversations, I bet you're long overdue for one. I mean, I'm just being honest. I think every young man needs one of those conversations, maybe more than a couple. Let's get some things figured out now. That's the tone here from Paul. That's that's where he's pushing them to. Paul's like, enough of this. I'm done with the nonsense. Let's get some things settled. Be watchful, stand firm, do everything in love. You handle those things like you're supposed to handle those things, and a lot of your problems are going to go away, Corinth. You're going to fix a lot of the nonsense. And that's really kind of the key, I think, to everything that's going wrong in the Corinthian church. Like if they had watched their theology better, if they had stood under the pressure when, when everybody else was running the other direction, the, the pressure of the culture around them, if they had loved and served others rather than seeking to be loved and served by others, Paul probably wouldn't be writing them this letter right now. Right? They'd be a healthy church. So the obvious question to arise out of that is, well, why don't they do all that stuff then? I mean, is it easy as, as easy as you know, trying a little harder? Is it as simple as waiting around for someone to show them the way? The thing's going to be chaotic until Paul shows up and fixes all their problems for them. I think... I think this is one of those moments where the king of the upside-down kingdom has got to change and work on your heart before the upside-down values of his kingdom will make any sense. The kind of things that Paul is calling the Corinthians to here, it takes a heart that's been changed. It can't happen without a heart that's been changed. To, To stand firm when everybody else is running in the opposite direction. That's not naturally in me. I don't know if it's in you, but it's not in me. Don't do that. To, to love and to serve others rather than to seek to be loved and served by others. Like it may sound really nice to our ears. It may get a nice little cultural applause, but it's literally the exact opposite of our Darwinian worldview. Those two things aren't in the same universe. And so a heart must, must, be changed to love God and love what God loves. So how th- 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 does that mean that those running around in Corinth aren't Christians? <laughs> that their heart hadn't been changed? Based on their actions? I think it's possible that some some of the folks hanging around the church weren't. But that's not just a Corinthian thing, that's an everywhere thing. That it's true in almost every church, I think, but there is a massive difference between being a Christian and simply hanging out with the Christians. Those are also in different universes. And if that's you, man, we can, we can fix that this morning. We can talk about some stuff. See, the Bible teaches that all people, by default, are separated relationally from God because of their sin, that, that we are owed the righteous punishment for that sin. The Bible calls it death. But the Bible also teaches that God is rich in mercy, that He loves us with a great love, that even when we are dead in our trespasses and sin, God makes us alive through Jesus by His grace. How does He pull something like that off? He sent His Son. Jesus who put on flesh and dwelt among us that that wondrous Savior that we sang about a while ago. He lived the sinless life that I and you are not able to live. He died on the cross as a perfectly innocent substitute to make full and final payment for your sin. And he was raised again from the dead as a vindication of his perfect and sufficient righteousness. And now as the king who conquered sin and death, he calls on you in this moment. Don't wait for later. In this moment, he calls on you right now to respond to him in repentance and faith, to turn away from your sin and to turn to him as Savior and Lord. A little bit later, I'm going to pray and we're going to sing. I'll be standing down there. If you want somebody to talk to, man, I'd love to talk to you. I'd love to walk you through what that response of faith looks like. Not yet, though. I've got more to talk about. I'm not quite done yet. So while there may have been some, some folks hanging around the Corinthian church who weren't Christians yet, I don't at all think that means that nobody there was. I think the Corinthians were guilty of the same thing that I'm often guilty of. That we are often guilty of a failure to trust that God's way is truly better when we find ourselves in those moments of dissonance. Those moments where the kingdom that we were born into feels like a smarter choice than the kingdom that we are being reborn into. but That's why we got our questions, right? That's why we're training ourselves to press in instead of run away. Is it beautiful? Is it good? Is it true? Does it have eternal value in an otherwise fading world? The Christians in Corinth seemed to have stopped asking those kinds of questions. And then probably... Because they stopped asking those kinds of questions, stopped trusting that God's way was actually better. So they made it up themselves. Tried to figure it out on their own. That failure never goes without a thousand other consequences that follow right after it. It's a snowball. It starts an avalanche. So we guard ourselves from ending up where Corinth ended up by constantly coming back to, to, to reorient, right? By, we, we keep checking that compass bearing and, and to make sure that, that we haven't shifted even just a little bit. And we beg God to continue changing our hearts and to think the way He thinks and to see the way He sees as He would have us to think and see. And then with changed hearts, church family, we stay watchful, we stand firm. We do everything in love. Look at verse 15. Now, I urge you, brothers. You know that the household of Stephanus were, were the first converts to Nicaea, and they have devoted themselves to the service of the saints. Be subject to such as these, and to every fellow worker and laborer. I rejoice at the coming of Stephanus and Fortunatus and Achaicus, because they have made up for your absence, for they refreshed my spirit as well as yours. Give recognition to such people. So, Paul celebrates Stephanus and his household as the first converts of the region of uh, of Achaia, and 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 then he includes Stephanus with two other guys as a group of people who seem to have come to visit him all right, Um, in Ephesus. And so we don't know for sure, we're not told, but it's reasonable to assume here that this is the group of people who brought the Corinthian letter to Paul and now they're just waiting around for Paul to write back so they can carry it back to Corinth, all right? We're not told verbatim that that's who these people are, but it's reasonable to assume that that's who these people are. And and so in the same way that he, uh, it's also probably Reasonable to assume that Stephanus and maybe even these other guys were probably elders or leaders in their church. And so they sent out a group of leaders to, to take this important letter to Paul. And they're waiting around for Paul to send the letter back. So uh, Paul commends them here. He celebrates them. And he says he's refreshed and encouraged by their presence. Um, these guys have been a blessing to him. Not everybody in Corinth was a train wreck. Seems like there were some good things going on. And in the same way that he charges them to listen to and respect Timothy when he gets there, Paul tells them, tells the Corinthians to, to listen to and respect their leaders, especially these guys. They're worthy of your honor. They're worthy of being recognized. Which leads us to the final greeting of the letter, verse 19. The churches of Asia, not the whole continent of Asia, but the yeah, Now you know your geography, right? Yeah. All right. The churches of Asia send you greetings. Aquila and Prisca, together with the church in their house, send you hearty greetings in the Lord. Uh, Prisca is another way of pronouncing Priscilla. And so if you spent much time in church, uh, then you're familiar with a couple uh, Priscilla and Aquila, uh, they were a married couple uh, that traveled alongside of Paul. In addition to Paul, uh, worked alongside him in a lot of places. Paul sent them other places uh, and churches often formed in their houses. Uh, and so uh, they were also in Corinth for a while. And so they, everybody receiving this letter probably knows who Priscilla and Aquila are. They say hi. All right. So verse 20, all the brothers send you greetings. Greet one another with a holy kiss. Unless it's a global pandemic. All right. That's the case. Probably a hearty Christ-like air high five. <laughs> same same thing. All right, verse 21. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. Let's call it time out there. All right, so it was quite vogue during this part of history to dictate letters uh, to a professional scribe, especially letters like this one. Uh, not only was penmanship an important thing in that culture, but we're also pretty sure that Paul had significant sight and nerve problems uh, developed more and more later on in life. You just couldn't t- take that many beatings and not have it affect some long-term things in you. All right? And so Paul, Paul's health got worse and worse and worse and worse throughout his life. So the, the later that Paul's letters get, the less often he was the one writing it down. All right? And so here it seems that he yanks the pen out of the scribe's hand. He says, I'm going to do this part myself. I got some things I want to say. So what does he say? Verse 21. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. If anyone has no love for the Lord, let him be accursed. Our Lord Come. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with you. My love be with you all in Christ Jesus. Amen. All right, so I know it sounds harsh. I'm fully aware of that. But Paul speaks here with an incredibly clear apostolic authority. He says, if someone claims to be a Christian, but is rejecting the Lordship of Christ, they're not a Christian. They're not. They're accursed. And then he writes an exclamation in another language. He says, our Lord come. Paul switches from writing in Greek to writing in Aramaic. Well, that seems weird. Why would he do that? He uses a phrase that had become a, a common prayer in the early church, maranatha. If you've been doing the church thing for a while, you have likely come across the word maranatha. What's interesting about that word is that there's two ways to break it apart based on what you're trying to say. You can either say maranatha, which means it's a celebration that the Lord has already come, or you can say maranatha and it's a pleading for the lord to come soon paul uses the second one here maranatha so in light of the idea that there would be some who claim to be christians who don't actually love jesus paul shouts come quickly lord come quick oh don't don't hesitate come quickly lord we need you now it causes a visceral reaction in him But notice that Paul follows up that reaction with a word of grace and peace. What does he say? He says, my love be with you all. In a letter that is overflowing with rebuke. Like, Let's be honest, reading this in our culture, it's going to feel like it comes out of nowhere that anybody operating on something other than a biblical worldview. What do you mean Paul loves them? Are you kidding me? Look at everything he said. I don't know if you notice this, but we live in a world that, that thinks that for love to be real, it's got to be completely void of criticism. Otherwise, it's just some form of a power play, right? A selfish attempt to retain control. Know, maybe I'm the only person that's come across that in our world. But Paul's rebukes are not birthed out of hatred here. They're, they're not even birthed out of frustration. They're birthed out of a deep and a a true, godly love for them. It's precisely because of Paul's love for them that he presses in and engages like he does. It's precisely because of Paul's love for them that he chases them down with the things that they desperately need to hear. Out of all the countercultural things that we've seen in this letter, this one may honestly be the most countercultural. Real love is never complacent. Never. It never settles because, you know, it's just too costly right now. It's not what real love does. It spins all of itself for the sake of the beloved. It extends itself at great personal risk to serve another. Paul had that kind of love for the Corinthian church. That's why he's still writing. That's why he's planning to get there whenever he can. Oh, may we have that kind of love for each other. Maybe we have that kind of love for each other. So, what do we do with this, right? How can we respond to God's word? this text and man, even the, the entirety of this letter? How can we respond to, to God's word? Like if you're here this morning and you're already a follower of Jesus, our response is the same as it is every single week. We repent of sin and we lean into what God is revealing about himself in the text, right? That's That's our role. And this week, I think he's showing us that he's got a much, much bigger plan for his kingdom than what we likely see in front of us, especially here in Nashua. Our job is to walk in simple obedience to what he's called us to walk in. And then, we give him the glory when it goes well. The Corinthians didn't understand that. They kept trying to grab at glory. They kept trying to grab at acclaim. They kept trying to grab at attention and respect. And that wasn't their job. It's not ours either. It's to play our role well. I'll be honest, that's not an easy thing for me. I I, I want to be, at least I tend to want to be the celebrated piece of what God is doing. Definitely alone in that one. But God is good. And he pursues us even when we don't get it yet. I don't know about you, but I need that from him. Because a lot of times I don't get it yet. In a second, I'm going to pray and we're going to sing. That's a time when we set aside to respond to whatever God might be stirring in our hearts, a specific moment to to slow down and process instead of rushing on to, to, to the next thing. We're going to give you that in just a second. But listen, what if you're here this morning and you're not a follower of Jesus yet? Let's fix that now. Don't wait. Let's do it. You can respond to Jesus this morning by meeting Jesus. I'm going to pray and we're going to sing. I'll be down here if you want to talk. Let's do that. Whoever you are. However, God is calling you to respond to his word. Let's respond together as a church family right now. Father, you're good to us. Thank you for the scriptures. Thank you for a letter to a a church that couldn't get it figured out. That wanted to make much of themselves rather than make much of you. Would you protect us from that? Would you guard us from that in spite of our Ineptitude and stupidity—at least my own. I thank you for all the rebukes that are given in love throughout this letter. May we hear them as warnings for ourselves, not because we've, we're in as much chaos as Corinth was, because we never want to end up there. We don't want to—we don't want to taste what they had to taste. That'll only be by your grace. Call us to repent where we need to and exalt you where we're able. Thank you. For those who don't know you yet, would you make yourself known in this moment? Would you open eyes to see and ears to hear, hearts to know? Would you call men and women this morning into your beautifully upside-down kingdom? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.